Welcome back to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology literature review. For those of you looking for the last two weeks of July episode, well, it doesn't exist. I attended a conference and I was on vacation. So my apologies go out to those two people who actually listened to this thing. But let's move on. August is here and uh, we will start off with GIE. There's a great review article titled The Colonoscopist's Guide to the Vocabulary of Colorectal Neoplasia. Histology, morphology, and management. It is meant for all of those folks confused by the words like traditional adenoma versus conventional adenoma. Clue one is serrated. Doug Rex is one of the authors of the review. He's somewhat of a celebrity in GI circles for those of you who are non-GI listeners out there. It turns out that most colonoscopists can tell a serrated polyp from adenomatous polyp during colonoscopy, but some cannot answer the question like why the term intramucosal adenocarcinoma should not be used in pathology reports. So this review is more of a vocabulary builder to help us endoscopists manage our patients a little better. Two most important things I took away are, one, don't call sessile serrated polyps polyps adenomas, just call them sessile serrated polyps. Don't use the terms like carcinoma in situ or intramucosal adenocarcinoma. Use high-grade dysplasia instead. And the other thing I took away was I was wondering why I have not seen a traditional serrated adenoma in quite a while. Turns out because they grow in a tubular villus pattern, the pathologist can't tell these apart from tubular villus adenomas. So they often call a traditional serrated adenoma a tubular villus adenoma. This review also has a nice chart of the Paris classification of polyps for those of you who are using it or actually those of you who don't use it but want to know what it is. But it may be useful if you want to identify polyps better. Celiac disease mostly goes away with a gluten-free diet, but there are of course those patients in whom symptoms never go away and nasty enteropathy persists. The next paper tries to quantify the diagnostic yield of small bowel enteroscopy with a push versus capsule endoscopy, specifically looking at ulcerative jejunoliitis, T-cell lymphomas, as well as adenomas for patients with celiac disease that's uncontrolled. Outcome here is that 20% of endoscopies, both push and capsule, resulted in findings of small bowel cancer, T cell lymphomas, and ulcerative jejuna ileitis. So that seems real high. I think explanation here is strong selection bias. No one should walk away after reading this paper and think that these types of tests will be such high yield for your average celiac patient, but it's a useful number to know. The era of cap assisted colonoscopy may be upon us. Another study showing that adding a little plastic cap on top of your average scope could be helpful. Authors of this study, which was a combo of chart review and literature review, think that adding this cap increases adenoma detection rate in right colon by about 6%. Maybe it's time for everyone to switch to caps. I've never tried the cap. Maybe I should. Ah, yes, gastroparesis. As the editorial accompanying this next article calls it a monstrous disease, this article describes outcomes of G-POEM, endoscopic pyloromyotomy for the treatment of gastroparesis. And overall, it seems to work. One patient who had TPN dependence because of the severity of gastroparesis actually came off of TPN three months after G-POEM. The procedure itself is a little bit longer than an EGD, but at least it's not as invasive as surgery. And if that's the only thing that helps someone come off of TPN, I'm all for it. Especially if there's objective evidence of improvement in gastric retention. I would have been very mad if the authors did not include this, but thankfully they did, and gastric emptying care improved from 62%, average for 9 patients, down to 25%. I assume this was a 4-hour study that was done, not a 2-hour study, but the paper doesn't mention what kind of study this was. Nonetheless, this seemed to be an improvement, and this is great. If you're going to do an invasive procedure in somebody, implant a device, or do some even minimally invasive surgery, you ought to have more data than the patient telling you in a questionnaire. I feel much better, doc. Thanks. In this paper, there's a possibility of a tertiary care referral placebo effect, but it's hard to argue with improved gastric emptying. 
in any case, the conclusions are that GPOEM improves GCSI. Uh, this is the gastroparesis specific symptom index, as well as improves gastrocamping objectively. So if you have a patient who is failing everything under the sun for their gastroparesis, consider referral to one of these centers that do it. I was always told that sclerotherapy for esophageal varices is dead. It causes all sorts of badness, and besides, banding is so easy these days. This next article from GIE compared banding of esophageal varices to banding plus sclerotherapy, so-called scleroligation, and found that the esophageal varices go away faster if you add sclerotherapy to your ligation. And just in case you're wondering what they have injected, it wasn't crazy glue, it was ethanolamine oleate, which is used to, to treat things like varicose veins in legs. Conclusion here is that scleral ligation resulted in fewer sessions to achieve obliteration, fewer bands placed, and it was 13 down to about 8 less blood transfusions for these patients. But there was no difference in repeat bleeding or recurrence at 3 to 6 months. The rate of recurrence was overall very low. And this study is from Egypt, so I think it'll be a while until someone tries this in the U.S. All right, I've seen the future. How annoying is it to biopsy patients for surveillance? You end up with a bunch of jars. God forbid there's a couple polyps, maybe a couple areas that look suspicious for something. So you end up with 15 jars. It takes a considerable amount of time to pass the forceps back and forth. So this next paper in GIE shows very cool set of forceps that allow for multiple biopsies to be loaded inside one set of forceps. So it's a single pass, multiple biopsy forceps. The coolest thing, please see the picture in the GIE. And I hope these get approved soon because I can't wait to try it. It's going to save a ton of time and a ton of money. And I'm sure pathologists would love it too because it comes all in one cassette. So you have to look through just one specimen rather than 15 different slides. JAMA Internal Medicine has another meta-analysis of 12 studies with personal or family history of colorectal cancer and then using FIT testing for screening for colon cancer, using colonoscopy as a reference standard. Basically, this determines what the specificity and sensitivity of FIT is in this setting. I'll give you the conclusion here. Sensitivity averaged to be 93% and specificity 91%. That's pretty nice for detecting colon cancer. But since most patients won't have colon cancer, how good is this test at detecting advanced adenomas? That's what we're really after. Here, the sensitivity dropped to 48%, and specificity was still pretty good at about 93%. And this all translates to positive likelihood ratio of 6.55 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.57. So perhaps this moderate accuracy is a way of scaring half the people with not-so-great fit test to actually get a colonoscopy, the only recommended screening modality for patients with increased risk of colorectal cancer. Then that's wonderful. So now that you know all about testing for colon cancer for patients with an increased risk of colorectal cancer, how about stopping screening or surveillance because of the advanced age? I've been known to scope one or two people in their 90s for screening. They still run about 5 to 10 miles per week, which is 5 to 10 miles more than I do. But when do you stop? And how do you stop? And discussing stopping tests is different when you're speaking with a PCP versus when you're speaking to a patient. And this study from JAMA Internal Medicine looks at views on communication preferences about colon cancer screening cessation. And I'll just read the conclusion here. We found that older adults were generally receptive to a recommendation to stop cancer screening, especially in the context of trusting physician relationship. And when the discussion framed the recommendations around age, health status, and helping people live longer, in contrast, discussing life expectancy in the screening context was more controversial. My takeaway is that if a patient had a trusting primary care provider, they'd probably the best to discuss this. If a patient barely knows the provider, GI doc probably should take the lead on this one and see the patient in the office and offer your opinion on the matter. I mean, really, let's not scope too many 90-year-olds for screening, all right? Moving on to the American Journal of Gastro, the red section has a border view vignette. 
I'll summarize it here and give you a moment to guess. 47-year-old man with tender nodules on upper and lower extremity extensor surfaces has an episode of idiopathic pancreatitis. Nodule biopsies are diagnosed as paniculitis. And a week after his episode of pancreatitis, he has a joint ache, septic arthritis, ends up with worsening pancreatitis and focal organizing fat necrosis near his pancreas. So what do you do next in this man with paniculitis, polyarthritis, and pancreatitis? Well, this is known as the PPP syndrome, and the origin of this is the pancreas, so you got to fix the pancreas. Systemic manifestation of pancreatic enzyme leakage due to pancreas duct disruption. This particular patient had an EOS in ERCP, Waldorf necrosis was drained, pancreatic duct was stented, both skin and mesenteric lesions went away. Cool case. So remember the PPP syndrome, paniculitis, polyarthritis, and pancreatitis, pancreas being the source of it. And you got to fix the pancreatic duct most of the time. Journal of Hepatology this month has the EASL, which is the European Association for the Study of the Liver, guidelines for the management of hep B infection. ASLD guidelines were last updated in 2015, and they're pretty good. I feel that the biggest departure, and please, liver folks out there, please let me know if I got this correctly. The biggest departure from ASLD is that ASLD doesn't really recommend stopping antivirals pretty much ever. Here, easel guidelines, which are much better organized by the way, the guidelines definitely recommend stopping antivirals after confirming HBS antigen loss with or without anti-HBS seroconversion. Just if you're wondering about the other two scenarios when these guidelines recommend stopping, one is non-serotic HBE antigen-positive patients who achieve stable E antigen seroconversion and undetectable DNA for at least 12 months of therapy, as long as you monitor them. The third scenario is kind of iffy. These are E-negative patients with long-term over three years, but only if you can guarantee monitoring post-discontinuation, which is who can guarantee anything. This guideline is full of great figures, and another good graph in this guideline is the cumulative incidence of HBV resistance to lamuvudin, adefavir, telbuvudin, tenofovir, and an alafenamide. Antecavir and tenofovir definitely win the race here, so go take a look. It has a couple of good pearls. Ah, the bias of overdiagnosis, one of my favorite topics. This time we're dealing with Barrett's esophagus. There's a paper in American Journal of Gastroenterology, and this one is from Chin Hurst Group at Mass General. We're all familiar with the ever-evolving guidelines for Barrett's disease surveillance, but are we really making any difference with all of our endoscopies? Maybe not. This paper looked at the impact of prior diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus on survival of patients with esophageal cancer. I think this is going to be the most important paper of the year in GI, so let's see why. We all know that about 90% of patients who end up with esophageal cancer never had endoscopy or diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus, and mortality rate for esophageal cancer is awful, and this is an interesting quote from the accompanying editorial. The recommendation for screening is more born from frustration than evidence that screening will successfully decrease mortality. I think this is true, not only for esophageal cancer, but for many cancers in general, but let's look at the data, shall we? These guys looked at the SEER Medicare database to look for impact of prior Barrett's diagnosis on esophageal cancer survival. So the patients with prior Barrett's ended up with earlier cancer stage, more likely to undergo surgery. So far, so good, right? Wrong. These patients were basically downstaged, and the observed effect on survival is all thanks to lead time and length time bias. If you adjust for these two, there are no difference in overall survival outcomes. So what the heck are we supposed to do for Barrett's now? Who knows? 
Anyway, great paper, probably going to generate a lot of discussion. Let me know what you think about it. I don't know if I'll be able to do this last one with a straight face, but I'll try. <laughs> Old Farts, Fact or Fiction is the title of the last article I reviewed this month. And this is the first population-based study examining the impact of age on flatulence frequency. They even define the term old fart. Contemptible or tiresome person, especially one who is old-fashioned, stuffy, or close-minded. However, old fart could also mean that elderly individuals pass flatus more often. So do old people fart more often than young people? That's the study, which was a population-based survey of more than 16,000 people. And the authors found that increasing age was independently associated with decrease, not increase in flatulence frequency. Well, now you know. And on that note, I'll say goodnight. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology literature review for the first two weeks of August. I know I haven't covered some of the journals yet, so stay tuned. If you like what you hear, subscribe on iTunes, leave me a review, and spread the word. You can always reach me on Twitter or at gipearls.com. The comments I've gotten so far have been real useful, so please leave more. Thanks so much. Risk off. Risk off, risk off, risk off.